Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message of grace. And so I know that we've gone through the Gospel of John. Did I say the Gospel of Great? Yes, the Gospel of John. It's not my first time. Uh, the Gospel of Grace. Uh, we went through the Gospel of John on and off, I know, for about two years. And um, it's like when we were as a team figuring out what do we want to dive into next, we decided, why don't we dive even, even deeper into the Gospel? And you might be asking, well, isn't, isn't that why we went through the Gospel of John? And yes, uh, the Apostle John helped us clearly see the person of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But as we look at the world around us and as a team, as we looked around this community, we, we saw that so many people, and I don't mean here, but we just see the climate of the church today and that we just have so many people trying to add to the gospel or take away from it. And this leaves people wondering, what does it actually mean to be saved in Christ? Is it faith? Is it works? Is it a certain particular theology? What does it practically mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so as a team, we decided, listen, we just want better for our community. And we want our community to stand firm and united on the gospel that Jesus preached. And this is why we're gonna go through Galatians, because it's a return, renewal, and reminder of the simple truth that Jesus preached the gospel of grace. And tonight, as we begin our journey through Galatians, we're going to begin this series talking about redemption. Now, if I were to say the term American dream, what comes to mind? Oh, yeah. Could be, it's so many different, right? Like it, it could be, you know, the 1950s perfect life, right? The white picket fence, large yard, has a husband and wife, two, maybe three kids, big home, two cars. I know this is generational, so I know it's not the same thing and we'll get to that later. But it sounds exactly like what it is, a dream. Like, do you know how much a house costs in Winter Garden now? Yeah, I, I did like take six years for me. Like it would take every single dollar of mine plus times six to buy a home in Winter Garden. I heard a comedian once say that the American dream is just that. You would need to dream to have it. Now what I, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> that comedian was not me, so I'm glad. But what I've come to understand is that the American dream has actually very little to do about the obtaining of objects like the house or the car. It's not about the possibility of romantic relationships or about status. What is underneath the dream or the idea of the American dream is the belief that if you reach this dream, you will be saved from a life of misery. And this is what's been appealing about America for immigrants for hundreds of years, especially throughout the 1900s. Misery to most people uh, throughout the world is poor quality of life. No running water, no steady access to money, education, living in shacks, no access to healthcare. And as the son, me, of two immigrants who came from Ecuador, a third world country, what my family instilled in me was the work ethic and educational opportunity that would give me the greatest chance to avoid their misery, living in a third world country. And they wanted me to have the American dream because it's not fall of their own but they wanted me to avoid and save me from a hard and difficult life. 
And so I worked really hard in school, got mostly A's, was practically the golden child in my home. My brothers hopefully would agree. But right up until high school, um, I think it's kind of shifted because underneath my intellectual bravado really beats the heart of an artist. Uh, to be an actor, to be precise. So instead of going to an academically gifted or excellent high school, I opted to, uh, I attended a performing arts high school. And so it was my version of High School Musical minus Troy Bolton's six-pack abs and basketball. So when I transferred high schools, because I did, I went the first year, I went to a really great academic school and I transferred sophomore year behind my parents' back. My dad was really upset to say the least, because as a son of immigrant parents, you cannot afford, literally, to be an actor. Why would you choose to be poor? <laughs> and said, well, you can have a job that can pay you. And so I was taught to dedicate myself to the pursuit of something that would save me from a life of misery. But misery to me, growing up, wasn't the idea of being poor. Misery to me was living life, never being able to do what I loved the most. Now that might not be your story. You may not want to be an actor and, or whatever, or be Troy Bolton, but we all have our version of the American dream. We have all given our allegiances to either people or organizations that provide us a roadmap or a template that says, if you follow this or if you follow me, it will save you from a life of emptiness, purposelessness, and displeasure. And that's just the stuff that's going on on the inside. What about the stuff that's happening out there? I mean, the events that have transpired over the last 20 years have really dramatically shifted the way this generation has looks at life. We've seen terror attacks and war and racial injustice and a global health pandemic. And that's just frankly hard stuff to live through. And so it seems like there's like this, this resounding fear to living life. And I think this combination of internal emptiness and external hopelessness has led to the development of what I call the new American dream. And what is this new American dream? It's to feel good, look good, and be good. Because if you can find a way to feel good, then maybe all those internal struggles will begin to melt away. Or if you can manage to look good, people will listen to you and value you. And if you can be good, all the better, because then you can help you address the problems of this world and maybe not be canceled. The irony is that we aim to be saved. We want to be saved while simultaneously trying to save the world around us. And this is a sign to all of us that what we're really aching for is redemption. And what redemption ultimately is, is the desire to be saved. We want to be rid of our faults, we, our loneliness, our feelings of emptiness and nothingness. We're looking to someone or to something to save us. The question is, who will you look to? Who can save you? Will you look to yourself? Will you look to your parents? Will you look to political parties, religious institutions, economic structures, social causes? What has the power to save you and the people around you? And it's exactly this same question that Paul poses to the churches in Galatia. See, Paul is writing to these churches because he's heard that they are turning away from the gospel they first heard through Paul. And this is of great concern to Paul because Paul has taught the Galatians the very one thing that could save them. And so Paul wastes no time to get the matter at hand. 
And what we'll see here in these first few verses is that for Paul, the issue at hand of leaving the gospel is a matter of life and death. Would you turn with me back to Galatians chapter one? Let's reread together verses six and seven. Paul says, I am astonished that you Galatians are so quickly deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul here, he's, he reveals his surprise to the Galatians because they're turning so quickly from the gospel of Christ to a different gospel. But Paul also says, listen, there's not really another gospel. There's only one gospel being the gospel of Christ. Now, just for definition's sake, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? In its most literal translation, the gospel simply means good news. The Greek word for, for gospel is evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelical from. But what exactly is this good news? Well, the New Testament writers considered the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ through whom we are saved from our sins. In other words, it is the template or the roadmap that God has provided to humanity that if we are to follow it, will save us from a life of emptiness, purposelessness, and displeasure. Yes, God has thrown his hat in the ring. But Paul here is making a very big claim. He's saying out of all the templates in the world for salvation, there's only one that works. And he says it's the gospel of Christ. But then why are they deserting it so quickly? If it works, if the gospel of Christ was actually effective, would they not stick to it? Is it that the gospel of Christ is false? Is it maybe too hard of a template to follow? But Paul says in verse seven that their departure from Christ's gospel is not by necessarily choice necessarily, as much as people have come into the church, false teachers, and they, see, and they sought to distort the gospel of Christ. But here's the crazy thing. Often when you hear or read about false teachers coming into the church, you assume that there are people who are contrary to the church, that they're not Christians. But actually in the book of Galatians, the teachers that have come into the church are already part of the church. The false teachers were Christians. They didn't come from the outside. They were people who claimed and confessed that Jesus was Lord. You see, the world is not the only place promoting false templates of salvation. It can and is happening in the church today. And the reason for that is because we've begun to develop gospels that follow this formula. Jesus plus something equals salvation. And that was what the false teachers were promoting. They proclaimed Christ with their mouths, but with their lives, they believed that they needed to do more to be saved. If we do that, all the time, with or without false teachers. We do that on our own volition. We have developed in our own hearts false gospels within this very community. And we must become aware of them because as Paul makes it clear, it is a matter of life and death. Not that your salvation is in question, but rather our ability to live in freedom and salvation is tied to whether or not we truly understand and live out of the true gospel of Christ. So some of these false gospels that are popular in our church today, and I don't mean mosaic, I just mean in the landscape, are these four, and they'll be up here. Moralism, legalism, the progressive gospel, and the prosperity gospel. Now moralism says Jesus plus good works equals salvation. 
Legalism, uh, sorry, legalism says Jesus plus human achievements equals salvation. The progressive gospel says Jesus plus relativism equals salvation. The prosperity gospel says Jesus plus high levels of faith secure you your salvation. But notice that all of these are false gospels because it adds human effort to the equation. It makes your salvation dependent on you. My question is though, if it is on you, what happens when you can't do it anymore? What happens when you fail? What happens when you can't contribute to your salvation? It's not like a 401k where you deposit every, every so often that you can bank out on it. The, the truth is, unless you do your contribution, you have no salvation with or without Jesus, according to them. You see, the human systems of salvation that we've built as a society are built on whose backs? They're built on your backs and on my backs, but the gospel of Christ is different because the gospel of Christ begins, is sustained and ends with Christ. A gospel that is not solely dependent and focused on Jesus is not the gospel. The real, for me, for the, the real salvation formula is this. It'll be this next slide. The biblical definition of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's why Paul in verse 11 says, for I would, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me, the gospel of Jesus is not man's gospel. He's saying that the gospel of Christ does not have human origins and because it doesn't have human origins, it's not dependent on humanity's efforts. So whose efforts does it depend on? And I know the answer and you may know it too, but to be honest, my heart tells me that it's on me. Sometimes we find ourselves trying to outdo the works of Jesus. And then therefore our relationship with Jesus can sometimes look like a performance because part of us thinks that we have to earn God's love. But sometimes we think, oh yeah, 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 I know Jesus died for me, but I gotta give him continued reasons to love me. But Jesus says, no. He wants to lavish you with a gift that no amount of human effort could earn you. And what is this gift? Let's reread verse six again. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What is this gift that God desires to give his people? It's grace. Because at the core of the gospel of Jesus is grace. And what is grace? This is it. Grace, as I've defined it throughout the New Testament, defines it like this. God, grace is God's gift of unmerited, ongoing, and never-ending deposits of his power, love, and kindness towards his people. That is what grace is. Sometimes we get it wrong because we think, you know, we've heard it in church, right? Hey, you, you need to have grace for me. Or, or hey, hey, you, I just think you need, I need, I need to give you grace. And it's like this pat on the back, like, I know you're a mess up. It's fine. It's okay. That's not the way that Jesus talks about grace. He says it is the very power 
love and kindness divine to change your whole life. It is God's grace that ensures our salvation. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says that we have been saved by grace through faith. It is God's grace that saves us. It is God's grace that ensures us that no matter what comes our way, we are safe with Jesus. It is God's grace that relieves any of us of the attempts to try to save ourselves and the world around us. It is God's grace that satisfies your every yearning. You see, there's this conversation that, and, and Hannah mentioned it during her call to worship today. There's this conversation between Jesus and Paul through the spirit. And he says this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The grace of God is good news because in light of our failures and shortcomings, in light of our inability to save ourselves, in light of our, of our difficulties and often impossibilities, in light of our desperation for satisfaction and wholeness, Jesus calls us like he called the Galatians to a place of grace and he says it's sufficient. He called them with the gospel of grace. For Paul, there is no difference. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of grace, because the gospel without grace is no gospel at all. For there is no good news for humanity if God doesn't come onto the scene with his power, love, and kindness. See, the failure of false gospels is that it lacks the power to actually bring any real saving redemption and power. You see, at best, these false gospels can only tackle surface level issues, but it can never get to the actual heart of the matter. In verses eight through nine, Paul tells the Galatians, there's only one gospel that can save and that if anyone else is to preach another version of this gospel, whether it be a divine angel or even himself at a later time, they should be cursed by God. In essence, what he's saying to them is the false teachers in Galatia and whoever it is that preaches a different gospel should go to hell. It's a very big thing for Paul to say. But what would anger Paul so much to say, man, whoever's preaching this false gospel to you should go to hell. Why would he be so upset? And it's because the gospel of grace can do something that no other gospel can do. You see, the redemption that humanity is yearning for has many faces, but only one name. At the heart of human brokenness is sin. We didn't read this before, but let me just, let me just read this few verses. It's right above, verses three to five. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. And so Paul says that Jesus died of his own free will to pay the debt for our sins because sin is a human problem and as such requires a human payment. Sin is at the very core of our brokenness. And that sin gets expressed in so many evil ways, racial injustice, greed, pride, hatred, disunity, hopelessness, fear, all of this and more finds its root in the reality that sin has plagued all of God's creation, humanity and the world. But glory be to God that Jesus died to save us from the plagues of our sin. 
And it doesn't stop there. Verse three continues to say that Jesus delivered us from, the, from this present evil age and to deliver in the Greek here means to rescue or save someone from something. So Jesus, hear this, Jesus died for your sins, the roots of your brokenness, and then promises to deliver you, to save you, to rescue you from all the crap, sorry, stuff that we, <laughs> all the stuff of this present evil age. What? other gospel do you know that can do this? What template of salvation has the world given us that can target the root of our brokenness and then continually save us from a world plagued by death and destruction? Only the grace, the gospel of grace can do this. And so Paul in his letter to the Romans says this in chapter five, verse eight. I love this. It says, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. What it's saying here is that the gospel of grace, you see, sometimes when we think, okay, if you're cold, I need an equal level of heat to cover this. And so, right, so if sin is this, then I need grace to cover it. But what Paul says is not like that at all. Even when grace increases, I mean, when sin increases, it's not that grace matches it. It's that when grace, I mean, when sin is present, the grace of God overwhelms it. Hear that today. You might think, man, today's the day where I outsin the grace of God. And God says, no, you can never outgrace me because my grace is more powerful and greater than your sin. The grace of God is truly unmatched. So let me just share this with the room for a second. Men, let me talk to you for a moment. Since so those video games that you play, I'm not saying anything bad about video games. I love Call of Duty all the more. But those video games you play, it can't save you. It can distract you and entertain you, but the wholeness you're looking for is found in the hero of Jesus, not in the main character you play in a game. And perhaps games aren't your vice, but the pursuit of woman is. Listen, you can be intimate with a woman and lay next to her and still feel wildly alone. They can't save you, men. And ladies, let me just tell you that that glass ceiling that this world is obsessed with you breaking, it keeps telling you, you can do it, you can do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't. What I'm saying is what happens when you do? You break that glass ceiling Will it finally satisfy everything that you wanted? Or will you want more? Both to the men and women here and to myself, there is nothing outside of the grace of God that can satisfy my heart's desire. Philip Yancey once wrote this, grace like water flows to the lowest parts. What that means is that grace tackles our brokenness at its very core. Grace dismantles and removes our sin and then moves towards the dead areas of our lives and brings it to life. The gospel of grace is very much an inward transformation with external expression. It changes you from the inside out. And Paul doesn't end his argument for the gospel of grace here. He, give, he goes on to give the Galatians a tangible and real example of how transformative the gospel of grace is. So Paul in verse 13 launches into this brief yet powerful life story. 
So Paul, if you don't know, was a Pharisee, which means that he studied and defended the Old Testament law. He studied even under Gamaliel, who was one of, if not the top Pharisee in Jerusalem. Imagine if Dumbledore like mentored Hermione, like it'd be that kind of deal. See, Paul was for sure the guy who corrected other people's Old Testament homework. Like this is the kind of guy that Paul was. But Paul truly was a prodigy within the realm of Judaism. In verse 14, he says about himself that he was advanced beyond many of his peers and he was extremely zealous or passionate for the traditions of his ancestors. You see, these these false teachers that had come into the churches in Galatia kept telling the Galatians, listen, listen, you need to add on the Old Testament law to Jesus. And it's the same law that Paul was very well versed in the same law that Paul once defended, the same law that he saw Jesus threatened. See, verse 13 says that Paul, when he was a Pharisee, persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And what Jesus did not know at the time, I mean, what Paul did not understand at the time, but is revealing here, is that the message of Jesus, that the message that Jesus preached was far better than the Old Testament law. The false teachers are trying to say that Jesus and the law are equal, but Paul is only defending the gospel Jesus preached because he knows that grace is better than any other system of salvation. And so he's telling the Galatians, listen, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I once dedicated my whole life to following the Old Testament law. I even killed people to maintain that system. But look what he says in verse 15 and 16. Paul says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He's saying that when God came to him in grace, his whole life changed. Paul stopped preaching the law and instead preach Jesus and grace among the Gentiles. And it wasn't until today as I was looking through my notes that something dawned on me. The Jews hated Gentiles. Like they weren't friends. They thought that Jews could receive, uh, they thought Jews could only receive salvation, not Gentiles. The only way for Gentiles to gain salvation would be if they gave themselves over to the laws and practices of Judaism. But Paul, the Jew of all Jews, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, began to preach to the very people he once most hated. That's crazy. Paul was a murderer and a racist. Why would he give up the law and preach to the Gentiles? It's because Paul understood that the grace of God is not fair. The grace of God does not discriminate. See, if there's one person that God should not have come to with his grace, it would have been Paul. Paul himself writes that he had every intent to destroy God's people. He had a violent and evil heart towards them. And yet God came to Paul with the gospel of grace. Paul did not achieve grace by his zealousness or because he memorized the Old Testament or because he was better than his fellow Jews and Pharisees. Paul was offered grace because without the grace of God, Paul would have been lost in, the God, would have been lost in his sin and would live out his life in misery. And what we need to remember 
is that the gospel of grace is for every broken person. Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. But when we forget that, we forget that all of humanity is sick with the plague of sin, but God's grace. God's grace is not fair. God's grace did not come to Paul when he most deserved it. In fact, it came when he was most blind to it. And I love how this section ends. Paul continues to, to give some travel plans about his first few years, about uh, as he was a disciple of Jesus, he visits James and he visits Peter and he hangs out with them for a little bit for 15 days. And then he goes on and it says in verse 22, Paul says that none of the churches really knew anything about him except for one detail. Verse 23 says, they, were, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So the one thing that the people know about Paul really has nothing to do with Paul. They didn't say how effective Paul was in his preaching or how many churches he had planted. They didn't say how smart he was or how gifted of a writer he was. All they knew is that something had changed Paul's life and they knew what it was. Here's what verse 24 says. It might mean nothing to you now, but it will in a second. It says that the Christians who had known Paul glorified God because of him. Now, let me ask you a question. If a, mur if a person came in here, KKK cloth, walk into these doors, would you look at them and be like, praise God, let's go. If you knew a convicted felon, a murderer, a serial killer came in through these doors and he said, God changed my whole life, would your first instinct be, praise God, let's go. Be honest, no. So why would these people worship Jesus because of Paul? Paul, the man who imprisoned men, women, and children because they were disciples of Jesus. Paul, the man who, who sanctioned Stephen's death, who was one of the pillars of faith in the Jerusalem community. Paul, the man who would be responsible for the death of many of their friends and their family members. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Why would the Christians in these churches worship God because of Paul? Here's why. Because if the grace of God could make a pastor and a preacher out of a murderer, then maybe the grace of God can do anything. Because if it could take a racist and make him a lover of those same people, mind you, Paul dies for Gentiles, that maybe the grace can do anything. That if God could take Paul, a killer of God's children, and make him Paul, a child of God, then actually the gospel of grace really is for everyone and really is powerful enough to save anybody. That's why they worshiped God when they saw Paul. This is the gospel of grace. And this is good news for every single person in this room. I no longer want any of us to walk around believing that the grace of God is for everyone but you. Grace is not earned, it is a gift. Grace is not for the strong, but for the weak. Grace is for the enemies of God and turns them into children of God. As we come to a close, let me tell you the story of a good friend of mine who taught me much about the grace of God. This boy was born into a Christian family and so you'd think naturally he'd have lots of grace in his life. That unfortunately wasn't the case. 
While his parents loved him, the love between his parents were strained. To not add to the discomfort in the family dynamics, he aimed to be perfect in everything he did. He wanted to make sure that he didn't disrupt a fragile home. And as he grew older, this became increasingly difficult because his parents had more children. And as the eldest boy, it wasn't enough to be a perfect son, but he also had to be a perfect brother. And so at 12 years old, he found an outlet to help him get through the weight of perfectionism. It was pornography. It would riddle his life with shame for the next decade because while porn did help, he knew that the Bible didn't condone it. He wanted help, but didn't know where to turn. He thought God surely wouldn't forgive me. And I don't want to add to any more of my family's problems. So by college, my friend had learned how to mask most of his problems, but now anxiety overwhelmed him because he had learned to bottle everything up. And then upon graduating from college, he moved away in hopes that things would get better, but instead he was met with major depression because while the setting had changed, his brokenness followed suit. Now let me ask you, where would you send this person? Where would you send my friend? He tried to be a better Christian, but that made him feel worse because he could never be perfect. He tried therapy and while relieving at first, it could never answer for the scars on his soul. Where do you send a broken person? You send them. You send them to the one place that is powerful enough and accepting enough to take a broken person and make them whole you tell them about the gospel of grace. My friend has taught me much about grace because that friend is me. That story is my story. And it was within the gospel of grace where Caesar, the people pleasing perfectionist that medicated through sexual vices and was left anxious and depressed was given the redemption he had been longing for, not by his works, but by the goodness of Jesus. Tim Keller gives gives this beautiful definition of the gospel of grace. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you're here tonight, grace is for you. The power, love, and kindness of God is for you. That longing for redemption, satisfaction, and wholeness can be met completely by the grace of God. Jesus desires for you to be released from your striving and from holding on to human achievements. Regardless of your past, regardless of even your presence, you too can share in the wonders of God's grace. So please hear me tonight. For the woman in here who had an abortion, grace is for you. For the man who was beaten by their parent and belittled, grace is for you. For those in the room have been sexually abused and mentally abused and emotionally scarred, grace is for you. For the person here who was addicted to porn or any other vice, grace is for you. For the spouse here who feels like your marriage is failing or you're not a great enough partner, grace is for you. For the person who is lonely, anxious, and depressed, grace is for you. And for the person who is weak, grace is for you too. And for the person who feels strong, grace is for you. And for the sinner, grace is for you and for the Christian grace is for you grace is for us all
I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He's a British minister, so he says things way more eloquently than I ever could. It is grace at the beginning. And is grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Christian life starts with grace and it must continue with grace and it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace, but the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So may we be people, not who become worthy of the grace of God, but people who live completely enveloped by the grace of God. We don't earn grace. We don't achieve it. We receive it. So let us join together and cast away our dead works and rest in the finished work of Jesus. May we release ties to these false gospels and immerse ourselves in the power, love, and kindness of Jesus. He is calling for you to come. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus. Welcome to the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Unworthy are we all. But praise God that you don't come to the worthy. Thank you for redeeming all that is in us. Thank you for redeeming all that we are. What gospel can make orphans into children? What gospel can make dead people come alive? What gospel could make a racist into a lover of those people? What, what gospel can make a murderer into a pastor? Only the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray for those of us who have tempted or are leaning away, deserting the gospel of Jesus, that we would be reminded tonight that there is no better place than under the umbrella of God's grace. And there are many of us who feel like we are not worthy or able to come under this umbrella. I pray that they would know with full assurance that God has invited them. God, I pray that any of us who are trying to add to your gospel and our attempts to earn your love, make us stop. Show us that we don't have to do anything more than rest in who you are. Thank you for your grace, Father. Pour out your spirit. We ask in your name. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you wanna hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.